Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference Podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by J.P. Noonan, a PhD candidate at the Department of Archaeology, University College Cork. His paper is entitled An Archaeology of the Munster Plantation, 1580-1641, Plantation Settlement and Industry in the Sceneries of Inchiquin and Kinalmiki. I'm going to give a brief overview of uh, plantation settlement in Inchiquin and the Kilimiki sceneries between the years 1580 and 1641. Just to put them into perspective, Kilimiki is situated in West Cork on the Bandon River and Inchiquin is situated, situated on the Cork Waterford border on the River Blackwater. Now, the plantation scheme really was about envisaging sceneries which varied in size between 4,000, 6,000, 8,000, 12,000 profitable acres. And a plantation scenery containing about 8,000 acres, in theory, was supposed to plant 61 English families within that landscape. And landscape is important because the sceneries, in a sense, were about landscape control. And the landscape was broken into land divisions and proportions in accordance with the new political, culture and social changes taking place uh, across the Munster region. Now, the sceneries really resulted in the creation and imposition of new cognitive material and social spaces, and you could break down those social spaces really into domestic and industrial spaces, and you could really collectively define that as settlement and houses. So really we're kind of talking about settlement as a result of the plantation, but new types of settlement. Um, The farmstead really was... For the early years and for the first plantation, we could break the plantation into two phases. Up the first phase up until the fifteen ninety eight rebellion, and then the second phase from the beginning of the flight of the arrows. But the farmstead was a basic ingredient of plantation settlement. Much of this was rural settlement, and this would be the early and first phase of settlement. And and farmsteads can appear, they can appear on their own, they can appear uh, scattered across the landscape, or they can appear concentrated in villages or hamlets. And you're kind of getting settlement forms, and these settlement forms then, I'll just give a brief definition um, of what they are and may be. A farmstead is an assemblage of agricultural buildings from which the land is worked. A hamlet is a cluster of farmsteads, and I'm using the term hamlet here because I'm technically talking about New English settlement. And the village then is a clustered assembly of dwellings and farmsteads. And the important thing is all of these make their living from the land in one form or another. Uh, the forms that, that come out of this, uh, you get various forms. You get linear forms, regular and irregular, uh, with or without uh, greens. They, they would be village greens. You also get villages and hamlets in this period. And again, they can be... They're usually agglomerated, but they can appear regular and irregular again, with or without greens. And the plantation itself was really about establishing pockets of English settlers across Munster with considerable outlay in agriculture, uh, buildings and industry. But really by 1592, we know that there were some total of 245 new English tenants uh, situated on about a third of the, um, the, the undertaker's land. And the administration by 1598 was a little concerned because they were stating that the undertakers were settling more Irish on their property than they were new English settlers. Now, 
just to talk a little about Inchiquin and Kilimigi. These are sceneries in modern day, we consider them uh, sceneries of fur within County Cork. And uh, Kilimigi and Inchiquin are the largest of those two sceneries. Uh, these are plantation estates. And um, Kilimigi was made up of 28,000 acres, Inchiquin 42,000 acres. I'm just going to concentrate on Inchiquin for the moment. Uh, this uh, estate was granted to Walter Raleigh. It was later confiscated and cheated off him when he went to the tower. And in the beginning of the 17th century, then, it was purchased by Richard Boyle. In Inchiquin is quite a large area, so I'm going to concentrate on landscape and settlement and domestic settlement within Mohili in the 1590s. Mohili, or the parish of Mohili and Tallow Bridge Division, is situated on a tributary off the Blackwater on the Bride, and that's between Yall and Tallow on the Cork Waterford border. Now, the reason that I'm, I'm using Mohili as an example is because it's the only plantation estate map that we have from the late 16th century of a Munster uh, plantation. Uh, it's nice because we can juxtapose or we can compare that against the theoretical civil service bureaucratic map uh, or plot of a, a Munster plantation. And what the Mohili map takes from that, it takes elements of that, but also the Mohili estate map, it indoctrinates itself into the landscape that it's being received into. Um, what it does, it gives permanence, in a sense, to a townland division of Mohili. Not only that, but we also get settlement within in, in that region, and we get settlement forms. And this is quite nice, because on the northern part of, of the estate, what we see is we've got Gaelic settlement, or Irish settlement. Again, we've got it, interesting enough, within the estate itself, and we've got it externally outside the estate. It's agglomerated, and it's, it's irregular, linear form of settlement, but it's interesting where it's situated. It's situated on the bounds between the forest and what would have once been open pasture land and what still is open pasture land. But it's also situated on a water source. And the habitation type here is um, roundhouse and we get kind of a, a, a very early vernacular form of architecture. A stone built house uh, with um, thatched roof. But we also get New English settlement and we get it in a number of areas. Uh, I'm going to concentrate on the two areas within the estate, which is a centre area and an area known as the Warren. Um, we're getting settlement by the New English in areas where there would have been Anglo-Norman settlement, Old English settlement, and also we're getting settlement in areas where there was possibly no settlement prior to that. What we're also getting is we're getting an infrastructure in place. We're getting roadways, we're getting hamlets, we're getting clusters of farmsteads, and we're kind of getting villages. But at this stage, it's mainly hamlets and small little villages and clusters of farmsteads. We're also getting a field system introduced. It's quite a substantial field system, but that field system is being subscribed a function, and those functions are assigned names, and those names themselves in essence, in many cases, or in some cases, become part of the townlands or the landscape themselves. Now, if we come out of that landscape and take a kind of modern-day bird's-eye view of that landscape and plot on that the known architectural, archaeological and um, upstanding remains that are on the landscape, what we can do is we can plot that, and what we can do is we can key that back into the plantation estate map to see if it actually does key in, and in this instance quite a lot actually does. And this is quite nice because what this is telling us is that the estate map itself is an idea of what is actually happening within the landscape in 1598 as opposed to an ideal to an aspiration, an aspiration to an ideal. It's actually, we're getting an essence that what's 
within the map is happening within the landscape. Now this is interesting because this can allow us to use the map to as kind of a key to unlock our landscapes in, in relation to plantation in the vicinity, but also in other areas where we have no cartographic resources or, or sources uh, available or where primary sources have been uh, destroyed or we don't have any primary sources. But not only that, we're also lucky here because uh, in the 90s, Professor Eric Klingelhofer of uh, Mercer University in Georgia undertook a number of excavations. I'm just going to concentrate again on the two. One here at Mohili itself, Castle, and another in an area known as the Warren. And this also allows us to layer on top of this uh, more information. It also allows us to verify if what is on the ground or what is on the map is actually what was happening in reality. And again, we can use that to identify and unlock the uh, plantation landscape in other areas across Munster. What I'm going to do here is I'm just going to give a summary that Professor Klingelhofer had because basically I can use the term, I, I concur with the vast majority of it. So what we're getting here as Mohili is we're getting a symmetrical nucleated settlement being established. New English settlement uh, in terms and in line with English settlement uh, across the water. We're also getting that the, the surviving distance on the map mark those that are actually on the ground. So again, what's on the map appears to be um, reality on the ground. The houses themselves are situated on regular orientations and spacings. They flank the road and they don't lie haphazardly along it. Again, we're getting an infrastructure. Uh, individual house sites are quite small and they're around 40 to 50 square feet. We also get these type of house sites in the English colonies in America in the 17th century as well. So there's kind of uniformity going on here. Um, the land for, formerly pertaining to the church has been given over to other purposes. So again, we got the influx of New English, Reformation, and uh, a new religion. Um, also, uh, from excavation within this area, just across from the church, Professor Klingelhoffel uh, uncovered stone foundations where we have these houses in this beige colour here. And they were basically they comprised of a, uh, a rectangular footing of limestone rubble on a heavy lime mortar base, and then this was set into a levelling up deposit of mixed clay and mortar, so basically it's kind of foundation. And he concluded that this were, these were timber frame structures that are approximately 12 metres by 7 metres, <coughs> but also you get the same type of base too um, on cobbled structures as well. So we're getting kind of new architecture, well, English architecture, which is being reintroduced into the plantation area. Also, in the second area known as the Warren on the map, so again, it, it, it describes what is act the activity going on within this region, there were a number of houses and there was an infrastructure. And when he excavated here, he uncovered the 1598 roadway, the ditch boundaries, and uncovered two structures, possibly three, but there was one structure which was a, round, a possible roundhouse under one of the structures, so it would have been a prior uh, Gaelic structure. But the structure two, which is the larger of the structures, uh, was an English-styled uh, timber-framed house. Uh, it had beam slots. And it was approximately 7 metres by 15 metres. It had a cobbled interior, it was tree-roomed, and that cobbled interior extended out onto the yard around that. Now, the other structure was a smaller structure, and it was, he, he uncovered slight traces of clay, and this indicates a line of rob clay-packed stone walls and it had a central interior. The interesting thing about this is this is more like the Irish architecture, vernacular architecture that we see up in the top corner, so, but a more substantial build. So what we may be getting here is we may be getting kind of a, a merging of um, 
sort of English vernacular farm architecture with Irish architecture. And these are the type of buildings that appear to be appearing within this landscape. Uh, we have uh, timber frame structures. We may have a possible cob frame, but I'm sure Professor Klingelhofer would, would disagree with me on that. And then we're getting this type of vernacular type. And later in the 17th century, again, in the American colonies, these types of structures were described as Irish-style houses. This domestic phase really came to an end, um, well, not this, this, the first phase of, of, of plantation uh, with the monster came to an end on the eve of 1598 and as a result of the rebellion. And we know that basically the only places to hold out against the rebellion were Mohili itself and Mallow Castle. The rest of the uh, uh, undertaking areas were abandoned by both the tenants and the undertakers themselves much to discuss with the administration at the time. Now, I'm going to kind of start in the same area and then move out uh, within the first phase, and then I'm going to go into a period when this area in Chiquin was purchased by Richard Boyle and moved from into, into that. But I'm going to talk about it instead of um, domestic, in, domestic settlement, industrial settlement. Again, it's along the River Bride. Um, and really what I'm looking at here, I'm looking at timber and iron. I'm looking at the iron industry, but the iron industry was unable to, was unable to survive without uh, a product of cheap timber, which was converted to charcoal, which ran those furnaces. But in the very early days of the surveys of the escheated lands from Desmond after the rebellion in the early 1580s, the administration is actually looking for particular items. They're looking for woods of timber and other underwoods on said land, but they need to lie near a port or a seaport or a navigable river. There's no point in having good timber but no access to it or not being able to extract it. Also, they're looking for items of minerals that are on said lands that have been proved and that there is a result. They want to know if there are minerals there and that there's a, an economic result from that. We know that... Um, in 1593, on Mohili, um, Thomas Norris uh, set up a blast furnace, and it would have been one of the earliest New English blast furnaces within the Bride River Valley. Um, also, in um, 1595, uh, 1596, uh, Walter Raleigh was uh, trying to establish iron mills within, within that region as well, and within his region, and uh, he was in the process of bringing over um, uh, miners and uh, ironmen. He, he also brought some over for, for other works again in other areas as well. Now, this, the, 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 the uh, iron industry in this region really didn't take off uh, or it wasn't fully utilised until Richard Boyle came in to uh, purchase these lands. And what he did is he tended to move the... Um, industry and settlement away a few miles, this again is around Mohili, um, upriver uh, on the river from Mohili to what is now um, Tallow. I've colour-coded here we've got Kilmakee and Tallow Bridge. Again we could identify this site by using the key from the names within the landscape as a result of plantation and also by archaeological evidence of burn spreads but I, I won't go into that now. Um, and what, what, what Boyle did is he created New English Settlement. Again, he created, uh, instead of villages and hamlets, really towns. They had their peak really in the 16, 1620s and 1630s and kind of flatlined then after that. Um, again, it's in agglomerated form. It's regular. It's got an infrastructure. So again, we're getting this uh, New English Settlement being established into the 
particular areas. This is an industry. This is a town which is associated with an industry. It's associated with an iron industry. But the iron industry is also on the periphery. It's not in. It's it's not in the town itself. It's on the peripheries of the town, and it also have, has an infrastructure associated <coughs> with it, which avoids the town but comes back into the town. We know that by 1620, Richard Boyle had 150 houses here. He had a well-armed militia. He had a well-financed militia. He also had uh, ironworks and he had English inhabitants, and they were of several trades as well. We also he established uh, blast furnace, iron mills and a landing pier. So the river was navigable up to this particular point and then he built an infrastructure specifically for the, the blast furnace to bring the raw material into the blast furnace. We can see it over here and in the Devonshire estate map and the blast furnace would have been in this area of just superimposed from field survey where it possibly would and from burnt spread. Um, and the, the, the roadway still exists. And the interesting thing about that is when you actually do a pedestrian survey of that roadway, you find a lot of blast furnace slag on the ditches. This is an indication not that they were dumping the blast furnace slag in the ditch, but they were actually metalling the surface of the road with the blast furnace slag. And over time, as that got scarped off, a new road surface was put down. They just deposited on either side of the ditch. So it was a pretty good heavy infrastructure. It's possibly a one-way system, bringing raw material in, then bringing it back out, um, finished product in towards tallow that area. So not only was he doing this here, he was also doing it in Capaquin, just up the Black Water, across from the Bride Valley. Again, we get um, linear settlement, New English settlers, we get industry on the periphery of that, but also on the, the river frontage. And again, when we do pedestrian survey here, um, we're kind of this is kind of interesting because all this came up because the council were actually laying a water pipe across. I don't think there's any archaeological evidence. I just happened to be there the weekend after they did that. And uh, they went through the blast furnace slag area. Uh, but it also uncovers uh, um, metal product as well. Uh, so this is interesting. This is from, again, around the, the 1516s to the 1620s. And in um, Tallow, the one that we just saw, um, Richard Boyle set up the second slitting uh, mill in Ireland uh, at Tallow, and it was set up in 1624. The first one in England was set up in 1623, and um, the first one in Ireland, then I'll talk about that, that was set up in 1613 in Kilimiki, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a while. Now, this area is important because he could set up blast furnaces and iron industry here because he had access to vast amount of timber. That timber was navigable, it was accessible because we have navigable rivers those rivers go down to the seaport of Yall, Yall at the time started to outstrip Kinsale as an export area but not only did he have cheap timber which he could convert to charcoal, he also had an iron mine now this is kind of less relevant than having the cheap timber but he, he had all the product within this area and we, also, we know that his iron mine was in a townland called Ballyregan it doesn't exist anymore but this area here is Deer Park Hill, and this mine here, well, it's a pool, it's called Pool Mung, uh, the, the pool of the mine. So it's, it's, it's possibly apparent that this is it. But when you go down, you take a look at it, it's quite a huge mine shaft covered full of water, but huge spoil heap around. And then this possibly would have been settlement just off the picture there. I haven't put it on. It's, it's a flat field system now, there's nothing there. But Boyle, in his diary, states that. In, in one instance, he states that he's in Ballyregan and he's creating a deer park. So, again, names, townlands, townlands change. 
but um, it, uh, and it's an evidence that this is possibly the mine. This is no, it, it is a mine. And so he's got the raw material, he's got the, the ore, and he's set up his industry here. He's also got access to market to the south of England and to, to Ireland as well. Now, not only do we find material culture just by, by, by doing pedestrian survey, just by walking, none of this is, is, is excavation, but also you find the material culture not just related to the industry, but you find it related to the individuals who may have worked at industry or who may have lived in the towns close by, like Tallow, um, because some of this could have come out to the site by manuring. Um, we have a nice pipe shard here, many pipe shards and uh, pottery are kind of recovered on these sites when they're get plowed out around autumn time. And this one is quite nice because this one we can compare with Eric Klingelhoffel's pipes that he uncovered in Edmund Spencer's uh, estate up in North Cork and Kilcolman. And this was burnt in 1622 by an accidental fire. Um, so basically these pipe heads and this one here would date to the first two decades of the 17th century. So again, we're getting a material culture, and as our earlier speaker said, uh, that material culture is then manifesting itself from the upper echelons down to the lower echelons of society, and it's manifesting itself in material goods like this through tobacco and wines and, and, and pottery, but also through um, items that don't exist anymore, clothing and jewellery. Um, now moving from Inchiquin into Kilimiki, moving from Inchiquin to Kilimiki, uh, Kilmiki. Again, I'm staying with the uh, iron industry. I'll move very quickly along here. And Kilmiki is situated on the Bandon River. It was granted to Fane Beecher and Hugh Worth, then it was purchased by Bernard Grenville and then by Richard Boyle in the mid-16-teens. I'm, I'm going to keep away from the Bandon area. This really is an area that Boyle developed and the economic differentiation associated with that and the settlements, I'm going to mark them in yellow. But I'll quickly talk about Doondanner and Kilpatrick and maybe possibly Shippool. The reason I'm talking about these is because these were settlements that were set up by the East India Company. Uh, they were set up in about 1610. The earliest information I have, I just got these yesterday, were, are these two letters from the Kernshaws who were down in Doon Danner in 1608. This one I haven't transcribed yet, but it's, they're talking about setting up works in Doon Danner, bonfires and, and saving a timber. The one before that, which I did transcribe last night, states that they, they, they rhyme, they, 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 he says something about Candlemas, 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 and then he states that they're reforming their deformed Doon Danner and they're building the weirs on Doon Danner and the river. Uh, the interesting thing about that, we know once the East India Company were here in Dune Downer, Walter Pottinger was breaking the weirs in the river and harassing the inhabitants and inha harassing the workers at Dune Downer. Uh, the fishermen were also complaining that the weirs were preventing their salmon going up the river. Now, an ironworks was, 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 was placed here at Dune Downer. Um, not only that, but this, they, they, they established, the East India Company established three settlements here. They established a second one here, Ironworks, called Hope. But they charged in a warlike manner with a kind of paramilitary force based at the castle of Dune Danner. They also built a bridge across the river Brinney here, which uh, is, is, is one of the tributaries off the Bandon River. And they complained about that, that they actually had to finance it and that the, the, the administration wouldn't do that. Now, this is kind of the site of the ironworks here at Dunedanner, and when you do walk around that, you can see that it, 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 that it is an actual ironworking site. Um, I'll move quickly along. Um, and it's, very, it's, it's quite nice because 
we know that they had at least 300 people here, and this was the, the second largest of their sites. Their largest site was their woodland site. And this graphographic profile along the river is quite nice because it allows us to see what's going on without actually having to dig. And what we see is there's a lot of tumble-down uh, masonry. There's a lot of burnt bricks. So that's basically the basic ingredient for a blast furnace. Not only that, but we have... Uh, a leak coming off into the Brinley River and it's filled with slag but it's also filled with fine sand now this leak would have been the leak that came off the, the wheel that fed the water and that, 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 that drove the bellows in the furnace, the slag would have been the, uh, the, the, the byproduct, and the sand actually would have been used for casting uh, casting pig iron and casting, but not only that when you walk the site you also find charcoal, which is very rare on any site uh, you find cleachly inclusions in the slag, which means they're using lime as a flux, and you also find tap iron. Now, this area here is possibly the area where they were using their, their put their working mills or storehouses, and they've actually leveled that off by putting slag into this area and flattening it out. We also know that, as I said, the, sl uh, the first slitting mill, probably in the British Isles, was set up here in 1613. And, and the first one in England was in 1623. These were for creating nails. The reason they were doing that is because they were building ships as well in one of their sites. And they say that they built offices, houses in Smith's Forge within this area. William Burnell, who was the chief shipwright of the East India Company, was in dispute with Richard Boyle in Tallow because he was also in partnership with Boyle or he was in business with Boyle up in Tallow. And Boyle accused Burnell of running down the Tallow Ironworks, the one that we saw earlier, at the expense of the East India Company works. At the back here, when we go into the forest, we see that there's an extensive roadway. There's an entrance from the back, so it's actually coming down from a woodland settlement. And there are also semi-defensive features in here, so it's being protected from behind, uh, it's protected by the river in the front. Now the woodland settlement, uh, the largest they called Thomas and was built upon the lands of Kilpatrick. It's, these are the lands of Kilpatrick, just not doing Danner. Again, using our, 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 our settlements um, and, and uh, uh, f formation, we've got in the townlands of Kilpatrick a crossroad and in, from the 1650s and the cartographic sources that we have, there's a green in this particular area. Now this road is interesting because the crossroad is interesting because it's the old road that leads from Bandon to Cork. It's the road from Kilpatrick down to Dundanner. But not only that, it, it leads from Dundanner to Kilpatrick to an intersection of two townlands. And in the Council of Province of, of, of uh, the Council Book for the Province of Munster in 1616. The East India Company are dispute, having a dispute with a number of carpenters who are taking ship's timber for the Royal Navy and they say that they're encroaching on their lands where they're collecting their timber and it's adjoining their iron works. Now, it says, the scenery of Kilmeek, this is incorrect, I'll be presumptuous enough to change it, the scenery of Kilmeek, Kylemore and uh, uh, Fenor. Again, Kylemore is a townland where this road from Dundanner to Kilpatrick runs into, but it actually meets at a townland called Ferris and another townland called Finner. So, again, the, the, these, these, these transcriptions are a little incorrect. So, and what happens in a woodland settlement is they're creating charcoal, they're also creating barley, making barrel staves for. Um, for 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 because they would have been the, the cargo containers of the day and these would have been this is for creating charcoal this is how they would have made charcoal the site would have been quite large it would have been in a um, a sheltered area and again 
if I plot the known archaeology within this area, what I get is I get an area where there's three large burnt spreads on the same elevation, and they're actually just a little south of where the road running from Doondanner north to Kilpat- through Kilpatrick into this intersection of the townland would be. So it's a possibility that Kilpatrick was part of the settlement site, this was part of where the charcoal production site and the woodlands would have just been north of that. Um, finally, I'm looking at the moment for the site of Bantam, which was their shipbuilding site, and it may have been about three miles downriver from Doondanner on the Bandon River because they, they, they state that the, 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 the site of Bantam is at the docks of Doondanner, but we know also they state that Doondanner is not navigable around the site. So the only place that they could is somewhere where they can get four and five hundred and six hundred ton ships launched from. There's an area down here called Poodle Long. It's called Ship Pool, but this it was called Poodle Long before the East India Company came in here. But we do know that uh, shipwrights repaired ships in particular parts of the river uh, from generation to generation where they, they knew of that. Also, it's not within the territory of Carberry because they rented some land off Carberry. Carberry's just across the river. It's in the territory of the Barry Oaks in Kilnala. But also in 1588, the McCarthy's, because they rented land from the McCarthy's, McCarthy Ray, uh, had influence in this particular area here. Um, again, using kind of landscape studies, um, there's uh, an infrastructure just in the wood here, and there's a leveling off platform which kind of looks like something where you would use as a storage area for unloading and offloading uh, heavy goods. And if we kind of check the field systems around that, we have an area here which, again, through aerial photographs, um, may indicate that there was some sort of linear settlement going on within this area which may be associated with that or may not be. So at the time being, that's it. Thanks.